0: There were times when I thought, you're going to pay me to do this? Goodness. For the last 10 years, they haven't been paying me. I've been doing it because I enjoy it. So there you go.
1: That's Dr. Jeff Norman, professor of clinical epidemiology at McMaster University. And we were so fortunate to sit down with him and hear about his career's work in the realm of diagnosis. He is the author of 10 books and over 300 journal articles that he happily still works on today during his retirement. Welcome to a special episode on Diagnostic Excellence and Mitigating Diagnostic Errors. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi. Today, we will start by rethinking some of our traditional teaching around clinical reasoning. First, with System 1 versus System 2 processes, and then with cognitive biases. Then, we will ask ourselves hard questions on what can we do to mitigate diagnostic error, and end on a creative note, thinking of everyday practices and instructional strategies we can do to achieve that diagnostic excellence. Typically when I'm thinking about mitigating diagnostic errors, I think back to the talks that I've gotten on dual process theory, right? System one is fast, implicit, unconscious, and system two is slow, deliberate, analytical. Traditionally in training, we have a tendency to prioritize system two and slowing down. And going fast with system one gets a bad rap for being error prone. But in talking to Dr. Norman, I quickly learned that dichotomy between system one and system two may not be all that it's hyped up to
0: be. System one is a pejorative term. Nobody says, isn't that great what he did with system one thinking? No, no, no. System one thinking is, is what people do when they're sloppy. Yeah, they're not taking their time. They're not being careful. They're not being systematic. They're not being thorough. Blah, 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 blah. Terrible. Let's switch over to system two because that's rational and logical and it's cognitive thinking. It's good stuff. The world talks about it the other way because we always prize that, that, that man sitting on a stool thinking deep thoughts.
1: So I got curious, where did this idea that errors in reasoning come from System 1 processes and where did the idea come from that System 2 reasoning can correct biases that lead to error? Turns out a lot of it comes from first-year undergraduate psychology students and how they reason through problems they've never seen before. So System 1 and System 2 may be good descriptions of how freshmen psych majors reason. But how well does that translate to expertise building in medicine? Dr. Norman looked into just this with resident physicians. He and his team asked how effective is it when they switch over from system one, going fast as possible, to going slow in reducing diagnostic error?
0: And so, what we did in this study is essentially a two part study where part one, go as fast as you can, come with a diagnosis. Part two, do you remember the 45 year old guy with chest pain? Would you like to take another look at it? And so, people would then take another look at it. And even though their overall accuracy at the first pass was only 50 percent, when they looked at the cases the second time, they only looked at about 20 percent of the cases. But they only changed their mind 8 percent of the time. And it's basically, a, and of course, sometimes they change it in the wrong direction. So left to your own devices, you're really a very poor judge of character, had of your own abilities. And
1: so when given more time to reflect through cases, In the end, the overall study accuracy only increased about 2%, and this experiment was not an anomaly. He rattled off study after study, which we'll link to more in the show notes, that showed that instructing clinicians to just proceed more slowly and more cautiously did not improve diagnostic accuracy.
0: Another study that I came across was, it's about crowdsourcing. And the idea is, of course, we're going to give the case to a bunch of doctors, and what we're going to do is, in some sense, average them. In some states, we're going to, from the, from the collective opinions of the doctors, we're going to decide what the right diagnosis is. Turns out the worst strategy to decide who what's the answer is to pick the person who took the longest. Going slow hurts you. The best strategy is the guy who gets there first is the guy who's most likely to be right. Pick the fast strategy. Rely on system one. It's fast and it's effective. Not just efficient, it's effective. What generally happens is when you do these studies, you tend to Put one against another. So this group is going to be encouraged to take all the time they wanted. Cognitive the device, and this group is going to be encouraged to go as fast as they can. We fo- showed very nicely there's no difference in accuracy. Except the first, the first group took twice as long, but there was no gain in accuracy from taking twice as long. Full stop. You know,
1: I'll be honest. I was pretty surprised to hear just the number of studies that showed that asking people to slow down doesn't help, but like most things in medicine, the body of literature is mixed. So for example, if you look at Dr. Sylvia Mamade's work on reflective practices, in one study, she instructed residents to either do fast pattern recognition or reflective practice, which she defined as actually writing out the pros and cons for each diagnosis on the differential, and then coming to a conclusion. For simple clinical cases, pattern recognition versus reflective practice didn't make a difference. but For complex, unusual cases, that reflective practice did have a positive effect. And thinking about this reminds me of the challenge that comes with these experimental studies. The cases in these research studies contain all the necessary information that's needed to reach a correct diagnosis, which does often favor system one processing. But in the real world, you have to gather information without explicit cues from case writing and Probably that data gathering stage is a place where we have to do a lot more methodical thinking through things like medication changes or chart reviewing. And the more that I think about this, the more I think the system one versus system two debate is actually a a false dichotomy. And actually, Dr. Norman agrees, we do
0: need both. The, The challenge, of course, is to think slow down at the right point. The first study I did, where we watched people doing, working up standardized patients, and watched them in infinite detail. Functional inquiry. Why do you that? To give yourself thinking time. Have you had any problems with headaches, with eye blurriness, with dizziness, with earaches, with throat, blah, 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 blah. You've got a few things that you're looking for and your, your ears will perk up at the right moment. But that gives you time to think through what's going on here. Physical exam. A lot of that is giving you thinking time too. I mean, there are obviously cases, situations in every day of your working life where you have to think carefully through something. Fair enough. I give you that. But it's also an observation that the more expert you become, the less you have to do that. So it's it's a it's a balancing act. And my obviously my concern was there's far too much emphasis on getting away from system one and t- far too little on system one.
1: And maybe the reason why there isn't that emphasis on system one is that the clinical environment is getting increasingly demanding. The cognitive load of the day already demands fast thinking before you get your next page. The next thing that pulls you in a different direction. So maybe all the emphasis on System 2 in training or even faculty development is a chance to remedy some of that. And so if I were to summarize so far, maybe a better way to think about it is System 1 and System 2 each serve its purpose at different times. And in diagnostic decisions, System 1 is not bad and maybe why we say, trust your gut, right? And just simply slowing down and cautiously reflecting without explicit guidance, is not necessarily going to correct errors. Another thing about traditional clinical reasoning that we learn, I remember every M&M mortality and morbidity conference in residency that I prepped that last slide after disclosing a diagnostic error, I would have to try to name some cognitive bias that came into play. Oh, this was availability bias or anchoring or something else at play. But it got me thinking does having a better sense of cognitive biases actually help us improve our diagnostic accuracy? So I turned to Dr. Wong, a longtime friend of Coriam, especially the beloved hoofbeat segment. And I got him pretty fired up when I asked him, hey, would it be helpful if we learned the biases that are most prevalent? And he very kindly, as a good friend, redirected me.
2: You can divide the electromagnetic spectrum into an arbitrary number of colors. And in the same way, people I've identified literally hundreds of cognitive biases and they overlap horribly and many of them are not well-defined and they're all trying to get at the same thing, right? Which is what is the definition of a cognitive bias? A cognitive bias is a deviation from what is normative, what is normal or what is rational, right? So people have come up with this menagerie, like hundreds of cognitive biases to describe all the ways that we deviate from behavior. But they're purely descriptive terms, you know, just like calling something red as opposed to light red or dark red or maroon or crimson or whatever.
1: Okay, so if cognitive biases are descriptive terms along a spectrum, that might explain why even experts can't agree on which cognitive bias is responsible for an error.
0: We then got a bunch of people from the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, and these are the experts on cognitive biases, and said, "Okay, guys please go through these protocols describing residents working up cases and identify the cognitive biases for us.
1: They gave the faculty in the study the same exact resident cases, but they just changed that last line. So, for example, the D-dimer was either negative or positive, and so that diagnosis the resident made was either right or wrong.
0: The bottom line was, I think it was something like, when the resident was right, they identified 1.8 biases. When the resident was wrong, they identified precisely twice that. 3.6 biases, even though all this change was the last line. They were reviewing the same protocol, except for the last line, the d dimer was positive or negative. All the rest of the protocol was exactly the same. They saw twice as many biases when the last line was negative as when the last line was positive.
1: They repeated this, but this time they gave definitions of six common biases to make sure, hey, everyone's on the same page. But even there, there was no agreement whatsoever. People could talk themselves into a case being, availability bias or base rate fallacy or representative bias. But the fact that there is so much overlap of these biases is just kind of the surface of the issue. Both Dr. Norman and Dr. Wong said the bigger problem with the cognitive biases is that people often stop at just identifying the bias and don't go
2: deeper. Because if you learn this menagerie, like if you learn what anchoring is, you can say to somebody, I really anchored on this diagnosis of of acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis, and you'll be able to start a conversation where that other person knows exactly what you did wrong. And I think that again, the mistake here is to say that that's the end of the process. Is that you say, okay, well then don't anchor next time. That is not the issue. The key is to recognize that the anchoring is the phenomenon. It's almost like the symptom, and you're trying to diagnose what things may have given rise to that that diagnosis. And just like diagnosis. There could be multiple things, and you're never going to figure out exactly what it was that was the prime mover. Was it a knowledge gap, overconfidence? You know, was it circumstantial factors, emotional things, tiredness?
1: Dr. Wong gave another example from one of the Coriam hoofbeats episode number 39 to be exact, uh, where he did not diagnose chickenpox when he was consulted on the psych floor for a patient who developed a rash and a fever.
2: Now, is that because of... Um, base rate fallacy? I didn't consider the fact that, you know, chickenpox is actually a fairly common disease worldwide. Or uh, was it just availability? The fact that there was a, a, you know drug induced diagnoses that were just close at hand? Was it, you know, like you could just do a million things. And I don't know exactly at the end of the day why it was I didn't think of the diagnosis. All I know is that I didn't think of the diagnosis. So the the thing I'm fairly certain of is, is why I erred. But in terms of why I deviated from what would have been considered to be rational behavior, like it's just people talking out loud about what they think happened.
1: Okay, so we may not gain much by trying to categorize errors we may have made being driven by this bias or that bias. But then it really begs the question, how does knowing different cognitive biases help us? Is there any benefit?
2: I think that clinical reasoning, talking about it, is most valuable um, in in the fact that it provides a shared language for us to communicate with each other about diagnostic mistakes and also diagnostic successes. And I think I would just add to that, it allows people to communicate with themselves, right?
1: Yeah, I, I really do get that. The language of cognitive biases can help us engage in reflection. And in terms of shared language, it does allow me to be a bit more open about errors, since someone else can relate to the time that they also anchored. And so my takeaway here is that this shared language of cognitive biases can help describe what we did, but the awareness of the type of bias is less important than figuring out why you deviated from the norm in the first place. Was it a knowledge gap? Was it overconfidence? Was it the cognitive load of the environment? Or was it multiple different factors? Okay. So now we know simply taking an inventory of cognitive biases by itself does not reduce diagnostic error, and nor does, you know, just slowing down in and of itself. But then, what does help? And for me, this is where the biggest plot twist came, if I'm being honest. Dr. Norman quotes Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal in his 2017 editorial in BMJ on the topic.
0: And it's such a beautiful quote, I've got to tell it to you, This is Gurpreet Dhaliwal, who's at UCSF. If you've not heard about myasthenia gravis, you cannot cognitively de-bias your way into that diagnosis. You can spend all day in system two and collect more and more information. But if you do not have a well-developed illness script that contains atypical manifestations of heart failure, you'll never recognize it. In the realm of expert performance, knowledge is king. He said it beautifully. He said it best.
1: Knowledge is king. You know, initially I was surprised to hear that, but after sitting on it some more, I thought, wow. That actually makes a lot of sense. You know, if I don't have an illness script for porphyria, no matter how much humming and hawing I'm doing on rounds about someone's unexplained abdominal pain, I won't think to send urine porphyrians and get the diagnosis. And if we look at experts, it might not be their reasoning that distinguishes their acumen, but it's their ability to draw upon their expansive knowledge and access the right information.
2: can't organize knowledge you don't have, and it's only by gaining knowledge that you're forced to organize it in the first place.
0: There is good evidence that as you become an expert, you move away from formal knowledge towards experiential knowledge. I like that better than you move away from system two to system one. With ex- experience, will buy you an awful lot of accuracy. expert physicians are really, really well calibrated in terms of minimal amount of information.
1: So if experts have more experiential knowledge, that is, they've developed knowledge by actually experiencing taking care of that illness, Rather than just being taught it or reading about it, it got me thinking, are experts then drawing from all their experiential knowledge less vulnerable to cognitive biases?
0: Everybody assumes that everybody all the time is vulnerable to cognitive biases. Very few people have studied how vulnerability to biases evolves with with expertise. And so this was a very simple study where we had a bunch of ECGs and they either had a confirming history, a negative history, a disconfirming history, or no history. And surprise, surprise! Medical students are incredibly vulnerable to the effect of history. Um, cardiologists, virtually not at all. They you could move them up or down by about three or four, or five percent. That's all. Whereas medical students, you're getting swings of plus or minus thirty percent in terms of accuracy of diagnosis.
1: Very interesting. So attending cardiologists are much less swayed in their diagnosis. And again, this was done in a controlled environment. But at least here. When researchers did throw them curveball histories with objective ECG findings, those attendings who've seen those ECGs many, many more times than medical students were able to engage in pattern recognition much more effectively. And speaking of pattern recognition, Dr. Norman brought up AI, artificial intelligence, and the reason behind chat GPT potentially being promising for diagnosis.
0: Chat GPT. It doesn't, it doesn't understand anything. It just pattern recognizes and that reason it, it mimics humans so well is because pattern recognition is almost the quintessential human skill. But that's not the, the bad guy; that's the good guy. And the notion that somehow if we can rise above that and become more rational, the world will be a better place—not really. In fact, if we stay in system one, the more expert you are, the more you stay in system one. The more you don't have to rely on on rational deduction and all that stuff. And so we're spending a lot of time in this cognitive debiasing, essentially picking on the wrong target. We should be encouraging system one. We should be devising educational strategies to improve that rather than to say, don't do it.
1: And before we get into just how we go about doing that, I don't want the idea of encouraging system one to be misinterpreted. There is certainly value in slowing down at the right moments, right? Stopping to look at prior imaging to make sure nothing is missed. Looking carefully at those medications and seeing if there's any correlation to symptoms. And even when you do get that initial diagnosis of, say, pneumothorax slowing down yet again and asking, why is that pneumothorax there? To help us uncover the actual underlying diagnosis. And yes, and then after you've gathered all that data, then you can lean into that knowledge base and maybe it's going to be system one that's going to help us the most. So we talked about the importance of building up that knowledge base and really solidifying those illness scripts, but I don't want the takeaway to be, hey, read more and see more patients. How can we do this in an intentional way? And this is where the part of me that loves thinking about systems and habits gets really excited and thinking about, hmm, what can we do every day in our practice to decrease errors?
0: There are also content-specific checklists. Let's look at all 12 reads and let's see about the R interval and the ST segment and on and on. As near as I can tell, content-specific checklists give you a small advantage in terms of diagnostic accuracy.
1: This does remind me of how some of the most diligent internal medicine attendings and residents spend a lot of upfront energy creating their own dot phrases for common presenting symptoms that goes over a checklist of all the pertinent positives and negatives that they don't miss anything on the differential. And as one of our peer reviewers, Dr. Cindy Feng pointed out, this can be a really big deal for those can't miss diagnosis, right? Think about the time that you're called into a PA arrest for a patient and you go over the five H's and T's. So checklists can definitely help us be proactive about our blind spots, make sure we're not missing anything. Dr. Wong also takes a proactive approach. This is a concept called a pre-mortem. This is a well-established practice even in the business world, and he adapts this to rounds with his teams occasionally.
2: So rather than doing an M&M, do a pre-M&M. Get a case where there is a working diagnosis, but uh, diagnostic uncertainty. Or whether the diagnosis is clear, but there are management decisions that are thorny. And have people work on imagining that they're going to present this case in M&M, you know, two weeks from now, what went wrong. So that is a practice that's done in, um, I think, business and finance and stuff all the time, um, and it's a good way of forcing people to think outside of just, you know, just saying, "Oh, it's going to work this way," or this person clearly has this diagnosis. So I do this a lot because, you know, most diagnoses in medicine are pretty boring. You know, like someone comes with a cellulitis, right? So to make it interesting on tending rounds, I say, "Okay, this person's going to be a- presented M M&M and M in two weeks," you know, and it forces them to think, oh, it turned out to be neck fash or it's not cellulitis. It's like a DVT or something, you know? Um, and that framework works well for management too, just so that they can understand that they can make good decisions and it can lead to bad outcomes.
1: What I really appreciate about Dr. Wong's strategy to decrease error is that it's really centered around building awareness because you know, out of sight is certainly out of mind. He has another strategy, but this is a dream strategy at the moment. And it's also built around Increasing awareness and transparency, but this time around diagnostic uncertainty, especially during handoffs.
2: One of my pipe dreams was in this handoff, right, in addition to the summary and the to-do, is literally a field called uncertainties where anybody in the team, whether it's an attending or a student or the day team or the night intern can, you know, write a note and just be like, the EO count is going up, and I'm not sure why. Or we're saying that this tachycardia is from volume depletion, but we're not totally sure. So that not only is there a shared model for what we think the patient has, but there's also a shared model for what we're not certain of about the patient.
1: Can you imagine what would happen if we openly shared with each other when giving handoffs what we were uncertain about? And if there are any makers of EPIC listening and wanna actually create an explicit field for uncertainties, that would be so great in terms of creating an expectation for people to speak up, right? Versus if we don't have a field to say our uncertainties explicitly, then what's written in the chart gets taken as certainty or dogma, and then there's a lot of inertia to challenge it. And I like where this is going in, in terms of thinking about system solutions to mitigate errors. I also put on my medical education hat and asked Dr. Norman from a system level with regards to curricula or instructional design what we can do.
0: If you've ever done case-based learning, you say, well, let's see, the patient has chest pain and he's 45 years old. What could that be? And then you create a differential diagnosis and you say his father died of a heart, a heart attack at age 32 and his mother is still alive with Alzheimer's. What does that tell us now? And you work through the thing again and again, it takes you three quarters of an hour a case. And you feel like you've learned how to do clinical reasoning and clinical history, data gathering, and all that stuff. And Hank has shown, looking at a systematic review, delightfully, you're far better off to have a one pager, just read the case and come up with something and then go on to the next one. You can do one of those every five or 10 minutes and you get more information out of it.
1: I love this since I can think of so many conferences where we spend a whole hour dissecting a diagnostic challenge, which is great, but maybe what's more helpful is exposing learners to a variety of situations where they can really learn the discriminating features of how this versus that presents or the different ways the same underlying illness presents. And you may think, so what? Uh, So what our formal education doesn't have that variety practice? We see tons of cases in real life, right? Like every patient is another pop quiz or another case, right? Dr. Norman points out even some of our everyday clinical practice settings are not set up to do the best mixed batch
0: cases either. The difficulty is that it's not, again, it's not just multiple cases. If you're in family practice, you're going to see far too many cases of otitis media, far too much essential hypertension, and far too little neurology.
1: And a similar problem rears its head again if you're only practicing in subspecialty clinics.
0: And also the the system is fighting against you because what you have is specialty and subspecialty clinics, where every patient you see today has multiple sclerosis. And so good teachers try to compensate for that. So as an educational curriculum developer, I would go out of my way to create mixed practice cases, interleaved practice cases, so that you don't have to count on the really good teacher reminding you of something you saw two weeks ago, which is idiosyncratic to you and that teacher. You can engineer that from the outset.
1: This reminds me of all those who love Enki cards in medical school. And maybe there's a way to operationalize interleaved, mixing up different types of cases and some spaced repetition with actual clinical practice, right? So what if instead of Enki cards for specific teaching points, we have decks of different cases, right, grouped by these are all the chest pains I've taken care of or all the fatigue presentations I've taken care of. And you go through them when you have downtime. So you're really reminded of the discriminating factors between each.
2: What
0: we found about in the educational literature is you get as pretty well as much learning out of a piece of paper describing the cases you do in seeing the patient. Steve Durning at Air Force's Uniform Services University for the Health Sciences. They've done studies comparing learning from written paper cases to computer simulations to standardized patients and looking at down the road in OSCEs and stuff. No difference.
1: That's an interesting point because I think too often we, ooh, and ah, that a curriculum has some high-fidelity simulation. You know, oh, they have a Harvey to hear heart sounds, but maybe instead what we should focus on is making that experiential learning as accessible as possible.
0: I did a review article on high fidelity versus low fidelity simulation in three different domains, heart sounds, critical care, and cystoscopy simulator, where you had your choice of the $3,000 cystoscopy simulator with the, the plastic urethra and the plastic bladder, blah, 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 versus the one donated by McDonald's, which consisted of a coffee cup and two straws. You got as much learning off the coffee cup and the two straws as you did, because it was all about hold the, the cystoscope and maneuvering. And it really doesn't matter whether those things are the color of a, of a urethra or not. It doesn't matter. And basically in all those domains, we showed that whatever you get with a high fidelity simulator, you get 95% of it with the low fidelity simulator, but you can use it for 10 hours at a time instead of the 20 minutes allocated to you. So the next student has to take over.
1: Yes, that point is well taken. Some of our current resources are quite costly, and maybe it's just as effective to go down the hallway of a cardiology unit and ask to listen to everyone's heart sounds and compare this sound versus that sound. And the most important thing Dr. Norman points out when you do engage in these practices or habits is to do this with some type of reflection or feedback.
0: Casey Stengel who said, that manager has not had 17 years of experience. He's had one year of experience, repeated 17 times. It's a point. The point is, it's not simply a question of seeing more cases. That's part of it. But seeing more cases with feedback, seeing more cases with some reflection about it, which is difficult in the environment you live in, particularly if you're in the emergency department or if in primary care.
1: That's a difficulty in many clinical environments that have a high cognitive load. And makes me think you know how can we be creative to get feedback without a lot of resources and maybe it comes down to holding ourselves accountable and playing games or quizzing ourselves right say we don't look at what the diagnosed murmur is in the chart and then after we hear it then we go back to the chart and then reflect on why we got it right or wrong and and maybe it's as simple as keeping a case log of all the presenting complaints of patients who've had weight loss you've seen or diarrhea without a clear cause, and then you get to reflect on what the pivot points were for each time you made a different diagnosis with that presenting complaint. Okay, I am smiling from ear to ear thinking about how we can better ourselves in the diagnosis of our patients. I am so grateful to Dr. Norman, who helped us stay close to what the evidence does and does not tell us in the diagnosis of clinical medicine, as well as to Dr. Wong. So to wrap up, I think one of my biggest takeaways in mitigating diagnostic errors is that after all the data is gathered, which definitely requires us to slow down and be thoughtful, is it's really going to be our knowledge base and our pattern recognition from having strong illness grips that we can tap into. And then in terms of building up those strong illness grips, the money is going to be really relieved practice of cases with feedback and reflection. However, that might look different depending on what mentors and resources you have. I'd love to continue this discussion offline. What do you do in your practice to mitigate errors? Let's continue this conversation and help each other all be the best that we can be for our patients. Leave a comment on our website in the show notes or tweet or X at us. Reach us on Instagram or Facebook or whatever platform that you use. And with that, that is a wrap. Thank you to our five peer reviewers for this episode. Dr. Group Dollywall, Dr. Justin Choi, uh, Dr. Cindy Fang, Dr. Veron Padakai, as well as Dr. Andrew Parsons. Thank you to Dr. Alice Kennedy for helping produce this episode with me. What a pleasure that was. Uh, thank you to Dr. Caroline Coleman for the accompanying graphic. And thank you for taking the time. This episode was funded by the Gordon Betty Moore Foundation through a grant program administered by the Council of Medical. Specialties and societies. If this episode was helpful or inspired you at all, please, please share it with your team, your colleagues. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. As always, we love hearing feedback. Please email us at hello at Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliate institutions. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.